Welcome to the Glendale Baptist Church Bible Study. We are continuing our studies in the book of Revelation, and today we will cover the final section in chapter 20, which is verses 11 through 15. Now, in our last session, we looked at the final defeat or the final conflict, and today we will look at the final judgment. So let's read verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who, who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to which they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake, lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, there are two things that we have repeated over and over in our study of the book of Revelation that should help us and sort of serve as a safeguard from careless interpretations. One thing is the fact that there are certain things that are presented repeated over and over. In other words, um, one of the things that we've seen in our study is how the same event may be repeated in a different way in a different portion of the vision. And then the second thing that we've pointed out, and we'll show an example that brings both of these things together, is the importance of not trying to read the book of Revelation in a chronological or a, or a sequential sort of uh, fashion. In other words, everything does not naturally follow, or the things that are recorded, the order in which they are recorded are not necessarily the order in which events are uh, occur. Uh, two examples of this. The primary example is what we've seen in the final conflict. The final conflict is actually recorded in chapter 19, but then it's also seen in chapter 20. So if we try to follow, or we pointed out at the time that we went over both of those sections, that the problem of trying to interpret everything sequentially, as if this occurs and then that occurs, then that would not allow you to see that the final battle in chapter 19, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, is recording the same event that's seen in chapter 20. So it's so important that we understand that everything that is recorded is not presented in chronolo the chronological order in which they occur. We see this with the uh, seven seals, the seven trumpets, as well as the seven bowls of wrath. That's not 21 different events, but that is the reoccurring of a set of events that's recorded 
in both the, or in all of those cycles of visions, whether it's the seals, whether it's the trumpets, or whether it's the bowl. So the same thing is true when it comes to the final judgment. The final judgment, which is what, what we have here in verses 11, three, uh, 11 through 15, but this isn't the only place where we get a glimpse of the final judgment. Uh, this is um, this is the first. It's not the first vision that addresses it, but and so let me just kind of give you two overarching points before we get into the body of of the content here. And it's with the understanding that what's seen here in chapter twenty, verses eleven through fifteen, is not the first and only place where we get glimpses of the end. The, or the final judgment, and even if it's not seen in its totality, the scene that is before us in these verses is actually given to, we get glimpses of it in other places. So let me give you two overarching statements. Number one, the events that are portrayed in uh, the first six seals and the first six trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath all of those are uh, events are the enlarging and the intensifying of the display of God's wrath against mankind because of Adam's sin. So all of the, the events that we see in the first six seals, the first six trumpets, and the seven bowls of wrath, None of these events are necessarily new. The wars and the other things that we uh, that are seen, even the cosmic disturbances, none of these things are necessarily new, but they are visions of the enlargement and the intensifying of God's wrath that is on display within the created order. And I can't say this enough, not only as we look at the book of Revelation, but as we look at events that we currently live through. We, need, we can never get enough of being reminded that we live in a cursed creation. And when we say in a cursed creation, what we mean is that God's wrath is presently on display in the world in which we live. It doesn't mean that by his common grace, he doesn't allow us to experience joys. In fact, it's during this period of being under a curse or living in a cursed creation that we receive the fullness of his grace in the gospel. But we are always portrayed, especially in the New Testament, as being saved from this wicked generation, which is to say that the manifestations of God's judgment, which is presently on display will be intensified and they are moving towards a particular end. So we live in a cursed creation and for the, for the most part, what is revealed in these visions with the seals, the trumpets and the bowls of wrath, it is it's, it's what has we, we have labeled earlier as temporal judgments. We mentioned this early on, especially in uh, chapter five. Uh, when when John saw the scroll in the hands of Christ that or the one who was seated on the throne temporal judgment so 
what the six seals or the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, what they are showing us are what I have called temporal judgments, which is a current present manifestation of God's judgment on the created order because of man's sin. And these temporal judgments are progressive and they are leading to a final judgment. So what we see here in our text is the final judgment. But the final judgment is the culmination of the things that are portrayed in the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. And what's seen in those cycles of visions are not necessarily foreign things because it talks about cosmic disorder, earthquakes, wars, famine, pestilence. All of these things have been present in the created order since the fall. The point that's being made in the same way we talk about Satan during the thousand year reign or during the thousand year period, uh, Satan is, is, is chained, he's restrained. And he's restrained from exercising full deception of the nations, but he's still active. So in the same way, the final judgment, yes, we know it's coming, but the manifestations of the final judgment is already on display. And what will be seen as we move towards the, the, the final day is that these things that are seen, the, cycle, uh, the, the cosmic disorders, the economic uh, up and ups and downs, the military conflicts, the ego of, of world leaders, all of these things will be manifest. In fact, we think of Jesus when he was teaching his disciples and they were wondering, well, when is the kingdom of God coming? And Jesus says this, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. You will hear of, of signs and different things that are taking place, but the end is not yet. But those things that we see, those things that you hear of, those things that you experience are but temporal manifestations of the final consummate judgment that is to come. I know we've emphasized that, but I think it's very important that we see it in, and especially as we prepare to look at the content of what's, what takes place in the final judgment. Here's a second um, observation that leads us into our text. There are partial glimpses of the final judgment from various angles in some of the cycles of, of seals and trumpets and bold visions. For instance, the seventh trumpet, everything that's portrayed in the seventh trumpet, which is recorded in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, actually assumes that the final judgment has come. So let's turn there for a moment. Chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And this is in conjunction with the seventh trumpet. And the language of it assumes that the final judgment has already, not only that the final conflict has taken place, but the final judgment has come. Let me read over that. Beginning in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpets and there 
were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for the rewarding, uh, or, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Again, if you look at verse 15, notice the wording there. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And again, in the song of worship in verses 17 through 18, all of which assumes that the end has come and the time is now present for rewarding and for judgment. We also see this in chapter 9, or excuse me, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. And in that, uh, we see, again, the language of completion as, as if the end has come. In fact, this is that great scene of worship, and it seems as if, Judgment has already been rendered, and now it's time for eternal praise and uh, the time of reward. In chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, it says, After this I looked, and behold, now by the way, this is after the sealing of the 144,000, that symbolic number indicating this great army of God ready to ride with Christ in total conquest of his enemy. But after that vision of the 144,000, then we, we read, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these that are clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, to serve him day and night in his temple. 
and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They sh now notice this, because we're going to encounter some of these phrases in the next few chapters as it speaks of the consummation and the renewal of the earth. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This, again, depicts the defeat of the enemy as if the people of God have been preserved from this. And it also presupposes the final judgment of Satan and all of his uh, fallen angels and all of the humans that have been seduced by him. So the point is, we can't be, because Revelation repeats with from different vantage points the same set of events that lead to a final end. We can't repeat often enough the importance of not trying to put things in a linear fashion. That is one of the flaws and one of the problems that we see, uh, I think, with the uh, dispensational view that talks about a secret rapture. Because they would read chapter 7, which we've just seen, they would read that as, as describing those who have been taken away by the rapture and who have escaped the period of tribulation. And I think that misses the whole point of the overall narrative here in the book of Revelation. In any, anyways, that being the case, we now move to the final scene of judgment. Some of it will be repeated in the next chapter, but let's look at the basic elements of this, this final scene of judgment. The first thing that we'll note is what John sees. And what John sees in verse 11 is a great white throne. A great white throne. Now, you remember in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, John saw the throne room of heaven. And in the portions that we've just read from chapter 7 and then other places uh, that, that depict or assume the end, the presence of the throne is always there. Two things about the throne. One, the throne itself represents not only God's sovereign rule over the earth, but also his judgment. So the throne is portrayed as a judgment seat. The other thing about the throne here is that it's white. This is the only place that is mentioned in terms of a color, this great white throne. And throughout the book of Revelation, white is symbolic for purity, indicating the standard and uh, the character of the judgment that's going to be, or yeah, the standard of judgment by which he will sit in judgment of all living things. The second thing to note um, about this scene is the countenance of the one who's seated on the throne. The countenance of the one who's seated on the throne. In other places, and especially in chapter 4, and in other places where it, it describes the one seated on the throne, there are different ways of describing it. Actually, there, there are descriptions, usually in terms of precious st uh, stones and so forth, or the, the appearance of a rainbow. 
But here, the emphasis is not so much on the description. The only thing that we see here is that his presence, from his presence, uh, the earth and the sky fled away. So there's no description of the presence. It's no description, but the effect of his presence, or one could say the effect of his countenance, of, of the, effect, the effect of the countenance of the one who is seated on the throne causes heaven and earth to flee away. Now this is another expression of a theme that's repeated throughout the book of Revelation and also indicated in other portions of the scriptures, and that is in the final judgment, there is a purging of heaven and earth. Um, we see, for instance, Paul that refers to um, in, in Romans, and he refers to the earth, the whole creation, moaning, groaning like a woman in labor. So at the very presence of the one who is now seated on the throne, heaven and earth flees away. It doesn't mean a literal fleeing, but the indication is that of renewal. There is a new order, and certainly what will follow in, or what we'll see in the following chapters is renewal and recreation. So heaven and earth. Will, and, and I like what R.C. Sproul used to talk about the cosmic effects of sin. And what he meant by that is Adam's sin doesn't just tarnish him personally from a moral standpoint, but the consequences of his sin has thrown the whole cosmic order into disorder. It's because of sin that we experience earthquakes. It's because of sin that we see disturbances within the created order. Not just the activity of man against man, but there is disturbance and disorder. There are tsunamis, there are hurricanes, there are tornadoes because of sin. If there is no sin, there is no cosmic curse. And we get a glimpse of this as early as Genesis 3, where God tells Adam, because of you, the ground is cursed. So you will be able to work the ground, but not without resistance. And what God says about the ground is true of everything else in the created order. So when it says that because of the countenance of the one who is seated on the throne, heaven and earth flees, it is really a summation of the cosmic disorder being reversed. Because now God is coming to that moment of final and consummate judgment. The third thing that we see, and this is especially in verses 12 and 13, and it's not just all together, but the point here that's being made is that the souls of all humanity stand before the throne and the one who is seated on the throne. Now, in verse 12, it says, um, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. In verse 13, and it says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up their dead who were in them, and they were judged. So that means 
uh, because we know there is a day of judgment. And we've already seen the uh, portrayal of the serpent and the beast being thrown into the pit earlier. So now what is seen is that all living souls, all human souls and all angels, fallen angels, are brought before the throne to stand in judgment. This is, Paul gives us a glimpse of this in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so the judgment seat of Christ that Paul alludes to in Second Corinthians is portrayed here as this great white throne. So we see, first off, that... Um, the throne is the place of judgment. Secondly, we see the countenance of the one who is on the throne causes all of the earth and all of the heavens as they were in their contamination to now be reversed. The language that is used is that they flee from his presence, which is to say that which has defiled the earth will be removed. And thirdly, we see that all souls of or all of the souls of or all human souls will stand before him as well as all of the the angel or the fallen angels to stand before him in judgment the fourth thing is this all of humanity are judged according to two books two books one of which is identified as the book of life now, let me just say this about this whole scenario. The scriptures, and especially, and we've made this point, I, I always find myself repeating myself as we go through the book of Revelation, but I think it's necessary. There is literal truth that is being communicated in symbolic form. There is no literal book that's in heaven that God needs to look at. And the reason I, I know people talk about it, and, and it's here in scriptures, but this again is a symbol to communicate a literal truth because two books are mentioned. So are there two books in heaven? No. And the reason we can say this with certainty is because the reason things are written in a book is to inform you of something. So if these books are for the for God, not for us to look into, but for God to look into, then that would assume he doesn't already know. We are talking about an omniscient being. He knows everything without having to look in a book. So it's really talking about the two standards by which he judges humanity. As we mentioned, one book, the book of, the, of, of life, symbolizes God's grace in the gospel. Now, in chapter 21, verse uh, 27, it's referred to as the Lamb's book of life. In chapter 5, when John goes into the throne room of heaven in chapter 4, he sees the 24 elders and the four living creatures giving worship unto God continuously. In chapter 5, he sees one seated on the throne 
and then he sees him with a scroll. And John wants to know who was able to open the scroll. And then the mighty angel speaks up and says, no one is worthy to open the scroll. At which point John himself begins to weep. And the angel speaks to him that the one who is worthy to open the seals on the scroll, which refer to God's sovereign purposes throughout human and redemptive history, the unfolding of his temporal judgments leading to the final judgments, the one who is worthy, the angel tells him, is the lion of the tribe of Judah which is the insignia that would have been on the flag of Judah or the banner of Judah. But when John looks to see the lion, he doesn't see a lion at all. Instead, what he sees is the lamb, a lamb who had been slain since before the foundation of the world. So the lamb, which is used throughout the, the book of Revelation, um, it switches off in terms of how he's described, but obviously it refers to Christ. And so we speak of the bride of the lamb, the wedding celebration of the lamb, because the lamb points to God's grace that is connected to the person and work of Christ. So the book of life are those who have been given to Christ and those who are united to him by faith. It's not a literal book. It's simply a way of referring to those who have been given the gift of eternal life in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The second book that's alluded to here, but it's not named, is obviously the book of the law. Now, because it says that people will be judged and their deeds will be judged. In fact, let's look at it again in verse 12. It says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books, plural, were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. And then later in verse 13, the same thing. Uh, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So let's put those together. They are judged according to what's in the book, and they are judged according to what they have done. The book would represent the law of God, and what they have done is failed to meet the standard of God's holy law. It would be nice to make it mean something more spectacular, but it's as simple as that. Now, the two books, and I've often, or I used to wonder, well, wait a minute. If we have already been judged with Christ, then why do we still have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ? And actually, this passage answers that question. We will stand before God, but instead of having to answer according to the law, our names are written in the book of life. So we will not be accused. It's not as, as if we have to stand before God and hear all of our transgressions. And then at the end of it, he will say, okay, that's okay. You're, you're forgiven. Everyone whose name is written in the book of life or those who are identified with the gift of God's grace in the person of Christ 
in whom or through whom you have the gift of eternal life does not have to hear judgment. And the reason for that is because by faith, we have already had the words of the law pronounced against us in the crucifixion of Christ. When Jesus died, he died as one who is guilty of the penalty of the law. So the two books, or even if you say the book of judgment is, is presented in as, as a plurality of books, however it's portrayed, there's still two, two books by which we will be judged, either the book of life or the book of law. And brothers and sisters, if we face God on the basis of law, there are no shades of gray. There is no curve by which we will be graded on. The book of law is absolute. So what John sees is that those great and small who stand before God, whose names are not written in the book of life, it is they and not us who will have to answer to the standard of the law that they themselves have not kept. Now hold in mind that the law prohibits certain things and it commands certain things. And the degree to which we are bound to the spirit of the law is at the level of our thoughts, the words that we speak, and the actions that we perform. Jesus tells his audience in the, in, in his, uh, during the course of his earthly ministry that we will be made to give an account for every thoughtless word and deed. So here's what we see. We see the great white throne and the one who is seated on it. His countenance demands the purifying of the whole cosmic order so that heaven and earth flees and before his throne we see the one we see all of the souls of humanity gathered before him both the righteous and the unrighteous all will stand before him and the standard by which they will be judged is the the book of God's law or the book of the lamb and that brings us to the final thing and that's the penalty that will be born by those who are not written in the book of life. And the penalty is clear. And again, I do think that it's, it's a symbol to express a reality. In other words, they will be thrown, it says, into the lake of fire. A number of years ago, I was speaking at a conference on the book of Revelation and I think I, I think I had to deal with chapter 20 and I made the point in one of my messages that I wouldn't be so quick to say that there is a literal pit or fire, lake of fire. But I think the image is communicating a greater truth. So rather than saying, you know, there is a lake of fire and where is that lake of fire? I think that misses the point to quibble 
over whether or not this lake of fire, because the number is great and the the the, the terror is great, but I think it's 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 wrong to quibble over whether or not they're really going to be thrown into a lake of fire. That misses the point. The very point that's being made is if you think that it's torment to be in a physical lake of fire and and that's that's horrible it is but it's communicating a greater truth and that is the ultimate torment of the souls that have no, whose names are not written in the book of life what is being portrayed is not necessarily a literal physical lake made out of fire but the fact of eternal torment for those whose names have not been written in the book of life. What Jesus bears on the cross in his death is the fullness of what will be experienced by those whose names are not written in the book of life. Jesus bore an eternity worth of wrath and he could bear it because he's an eternal being. Those who are not in the book of life will experience, and I don't know if there's any place that can adequately describe it. It's one of those things that God gives us symbols to understand it because the reality is greater than the description. But what we do know is they will live for eternity. And for all eternity, they will experience the fullness of divine wrath. The day of judgment is coming. And the day of judgment means that those who belong to Christ will stand before the throne, but they will be identified according to the book of life and according to the righteousness of of the Lamb and the grace of God in the Lamb. And they will not be brought before the throne as a judge, as, as if, okay, this is what you did, this is what you did, now you get off. No, we go before the judge and we see him in the fullness of his holiness. But he will not read before us from the book of law. Our names are in the book of life. But those whose names are not in the book of life will bear the consequence of having not kept the letter and the spirit of the law. We will give some concluding thoughts on that as we segue into chapter 21 in our next session. So let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious God, again, we do thank you for the gift of life and all that comes with it but we especially thank you for newness of life because that newness of life means that we are those upon whom the end of the age has come. And we are the first fruit of the new creation. So we thank you for our present union with Christ. We thank you for our present embrace of all of your grace that's in him. We live in difficult times, but we live in times that remind us of your present curse, which is moving to its culmination. And we pray that as we see the day coming, 
that you would strengthen us, that we would be faithful witnesses of your grace in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But as we look to your word, Father, we pray that we are forever strengthened by the knowledge that we belong to you. and There is nothing or no one that can pluck us from your hands. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that, yes, there is a book that, that calls us to judgment. But there is also a book that contains the fact that we belong to the Lamb. Let us live in that truth and let it be our comfort and our strength. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.